This is Theory of Change. I'm Matthew Sheffield. Although we usually talk about political and religious trends at Theory of Change, technological trends are also very much worth paying attention to. One of the biggest recent technology developments has been the emergence of Linux, an operating system that has taken the computing industry by storm. Thirty years ago, Linux began as a college student's hobby operating system project. Today, it's a critical piece of software that powers the majority of the world's smartphones and the most powerful servers and supercomputers. Along the way, Linux managed to displace much more established versions of the Unix operating system that it was designed to be compatible with. But Linux as a technological phenomenon has been about more than what it makes computers do. It also popularized the concept of open source development, a new way of programming where everyone has access to the underlying software code and they can modify it and redistribute it as well. Before Linux, it was considered a threat to capitalism and society itself. But now, open source development has become even more popular than Linux and is used almost everywhere in computing. In this episode, we feature Miguel de Acaza, a distinguished engineer at Microsoft who played several important roles in the spread of open source, including at Microsoft, where he helped turn a company that was vehemently in favor of proprietary software into one that now embraces it and sells it in many different ways. Deikaza began using Linux while he was in college shortly after its first release in 1991. Soon thereafter, he released Midnight Commander, a powerful program for managing files that is still developed today. Several years later, he co-founded GNOME, a graphical environment for Linux and other Unix operating systems. After creating GNOME, he began working on enabling open source developers to write programs that could run on Windows, Mac, and Linux. That eventually led him to co-found Xamarin, which was later turned into a software platform that could create code for both Android and Apple's iOS. In 2016, Xamarin was purchased by Microsoft, and he has worked there ever since. Thanks so much for being here, Miguel. Thanks for having me. So you are from Mexico originally, and uh, that was when you first started using Linux as a university student in 1991, not too long after Linus had released it. So tell us a little bit about how you got into it or why you did. It was probably the first week of college, and I ran into this really fun guy which I knew from reputation and from the BBSs. His name was Fernando Magariños. And I just adored him because he was so funny in, in the forums. He was somebody that I, I love reading because everything he said was incredibly funny. And I find boyed him a little bit in the hallways. And we had just recently gotten some Unix systems at the university I was working at. And this system really didn't have any software. And he said, oh, listen, you have these Unix machines. If you want to spice them up with software, you should go to this side. And he gave me a stack of papers and he gave it away for free. It was a stack of papers that contained lists of FTP sites. Uh, and what is an FTP site for those who don't know? It used to be, it used to be machines that shared software. So this was a directory. It was like a yellow pages of free software that was available on the net. And he said, the first thing you want to go get is go get the GNU stuff because they give you text editors for free and they give you compilers for free. They're optimized for your machine. So I went and did that. And it was like uh, being a, a kid at a candy store. There was so much software. 
But he was right. In particular, the GNU software was very well done. It was very comprehensive. And among those things, there were a couple of documents in those sites. And one of them was the GNU manifesto where Richard Stallman explained why he had to build a free operating system from the ground up. So I fell in love with the manifesto and I was looking forward one day to repay to this community of people what they had done for me, right? They had given me all this free software that I had no idea I could get. And what was radical, what was very radical is that the software at the time that you could get for PCs was locked up. You could get the software, it would be amazing, but you couldn't see how it was done or how it worked. And the GNU people had decided that this, this knowledge, this very hard-earned knowledge that you could only get at the best universities or if you work at the best places in the industry, was shared with everybody. So I was in awe that somebody would give away all that free knowledge. And I learned so much just from reading their code. I was incredibly grateful and I started to look forward to how I could contribute. They said, you can give money. I didn't have money, so I couldn't give them that. Or you can evangelize or you can share the code or you can contribute code. So, so I decided to help in anyone, any way I could except money. So, so that's what I did. That's how I got started. Then after this, Linux was the missing piece of the GNU system. GNU was a nice addition that you could put to an existing Unix system. But Linux was the way of having a system from the ground up, from the moment that your computer started running all your software and be entirely free and you could learn from every part of it so it was like catnip for software developers so when linux uh, came out i immediately rallied to use it and uh, install it and, and be part of that community all right so the other thing for linux it was interesting because at the moment in time in the late 80s early 90s you had a lot of different unix compatible vendors out there that were selling these versions of unix but they were all just a little bit different. And so as a developer, it was a nightmare to port your software to the different platforms. And then of course, all the platforms were using proprietary, very expensive custom hardware that was just out of reach for everybody. So there were, there were a lot of problems in Unix as a operating system really never took off and DOS and Windows and Mac just utterly dominated the desktop space. Um, was that how it was for you? And how did you see it at that time? Yeah, certainly the high-end vendors like uh, Digital and HP and Silicon Graphics, they were selling high-end hardware that was out of reach for most people. And even those that tried to go into the mass market, like Apple had AUX and Microsoft had Xenix, I imagine that they had some license agreement that prevented them from pricing, but it was certainly expensive and it was not available. So I actually never got a chance to play with Xenix. Uh, AUX, I think I saw it almost as a museum piece years after, but Linux was available. Linux was available and was free and mm -hmm. uh, I could learn from it. So yeah, I think it took off and I became an evangelist of Linux almost overnight. Now, around that same time, there was also another free Unix that was emerging, but it never quite got off the ground as far as Linux did, but it's still going today very strong in some sectors. What was, did you ever have any contact with that? Or? Yes, I had, <laughs> I had a number of contacts. Uh, the, the way that it started actually was Dr. Dobbs ran a series of articles on porting the Unix from Berkeley to PCs. Uh, and uh, they run this series of articles showing how they were porting the system, 386 PSD. And it ran over a series of months and 
I believe that at some point they released the software, but there was a little bit of a technicality in that BSD relied on some proprietary pieces from the people that owned Unix at the time, which was AT&T. So there were efforts to have a clean version of BSD and different approaches at having a clean version. So some folks took 386 BSD and made NetBSD, and there was a disagreement over the direction between the team members of where BSD should go. So it split up between two groups, FreeBSD and NetBSD. And then there was a disagreement <laughs> among the NetBSD crowd again over the direction. And this led to the fork between OpenBSD and NetBSD. And I took sides in some of these arguments, but there was a little bit of a concern that, that BSD might be prevented from surviving. There was a lawsuit between AT&T and a company that had embraced one of these BSDs called BSDI. So there was a little bit of that concern. And the other piece that happened at the time was that the Linux people moved very quickly to build a thing called shared libraries. And they were a hack. They were not the shared libraries that we have come to use and love and have a really good design. It was really a hacky version of shared libraries. The, the kind of ugly hack that you would expect from a DOS program. But it worked and it meant that it used a lot less disk space. So for me, the big win really was that while Linux was more unstable than BSD, I could fit it on my machine. So I still had to use the, the university computer I was using. I still had to use it for DOS operations and I could dedicate a small sliver of the disk to Linux. And I couldn't afford that with BSD. So for me, the choice at the time was simple. Despite the instability of Linux, it was worth having it for that reason. And then you got into developing for it yourself. As you were saying, you were trying to give back in some way and you decided to basically clone a popular DOS program. And it's funny because I'm sure a lot of people watching or listening today have no idea what DOS was. <laughs> oh, yes. But yeah, so DOS was a text-only, very basic operating system that was on early PC computers. But they had a very popular file manager program called Norton Commander. And it was right. basically, it was a way for a lot of people who didn't want to have to type commands to do stuff. It was something they really liked. It was a way to copy a file from one directory to another. Like nowadays, people yeah. think that's a basic thing that it's just something you do automatically. At that time... Being able to copy something with one keystroke, it was amazing and people loved it. They loved this program, Norton Commander. Yeah, and it, it had a good UI. It had a good UI. It was it was well done and I love DOS and I it, it opened the doors <laughs> to understand how a DOS system worked at the time. So yeah, when I moved to Unix, I, I did miss that agility that came with a file manager. So it was one of my early contributions to the space, having essentially a clone of that Norton Commander for Linux. Yeah. And your program was called what? <laughs> you didn't say the mouseless. name. It was called Mouseless Commander because Linux at the time didn't have much support. So it was one of the big things about this Norton Commander file manager was that you could use the mouse, right? So you could click and copy files and choose where to copy them. So it was initially called the Mouseless Commander. And later this engineer out of Italy, he wrote a driver for mice in Linux that I could use. So he collaborated with me in adding mouse support to, to the mouseless commander. So he became the mouseless commander with mouse support. <laughs> I thought it was funny, but the community of people thought it was ridiculous. So, so they held a, a, 
a, a vote and, and we renamed it Midnight Commander by popular demand, which was probably seven votes versus three or whatever. Uh, <laughs> it was an epic election, but we changed the name at the time and, uh, and that became the Midnight Commander. And it is still a program that other people are developing even today. So, if, and now and I'm trying to, is it available for Windows and Mac? It is available for Mac. I know that. I don't know if it's available for Windows, but it is for Mac. I use it every day, every day. There's not one day I don't use it. If I turn this Mac, you'll probably see it. But if I do it, it's going to switch the audio again. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I use it every day. I use it every day. Works on Mac, works on Linux. I'm sure somebody has run on, on Windows. In fact, I think that when the Windows people wanted to show their new terminal, the new terminal emulator, mm -hmm. uh, they show the Midnight Commander. For some reason, the Midnight Commander, it's one of the few apps that use color on the Linux terminal. So it ends up in every screenshot that you can imagine. So every time somebody does a terminal, there's a screenshot of the Midnight Commander in there. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I get to see it a lot. So basically, you and other programmers, especially the, the GNU ones, had developed the suite of command line utilities and programming libraries and whatnot, text editors. But then people began to start thinking about graphical software from an open source standpoint. In the proprietary Unix systems that were out there, they had graphical systems, but frankly, they were pretty rudimentary. Sun had one that was called Open Windows that had one button on the Windows, I think. <laughs> and, I liked uh, it. I liked you liked it. it. Okay, interesting. I liked, I liked Open Windows, and they made a lot of those things open source before we called them open source. So I would say that Sun was ahead of their time, but they had, they had a, I would say the design system was a little bit odd for people to embrace. They have those round buttons before it was popular. And yeah. they had a few ideas that were not quite common for Windows people to see. And there was a competitor called Motif that I believe HP and others used, a mm -hmm. desktop environment called the Common Desktop Environment, CDE. Yeah, so there were definitely user interfaces for Unix, and they worked fine as long as you had powerful hardware. So I would say the first challenge that Linux had on the UI front was the graphical system that we could get our hands on called X11 was just too complex for the kind of hardware that we had at the time and for the, the kind of graphics cards that we had at the time and for the kind of optimizations that we could drop in the graphic cards. So it was just initially a really terrible experience, the graphical user interface. So it would take time, it would take years for hardware to get better, it would take device drivers to get better, uh, machines to get better before a serious attempt could be made. One of the other limitations that they had was that they were trying to use Adobe PostScript, which was developed to be a printer programming language. They were trying to use it as a display interface. And that PostScript right. is yeah. very Some complicated yes. and limited. So like Open Windows, as I recall, was in PostScript. Yes, I mean, that's right. It did work fine for Song, but it definitely didn't work for Linux. Yeah. It's a good idea, but not great. Yeah. And Apple reimagined that concept later when they came back to Unix and because the court system is based in PDF, descendant right, yeah. of PostScript. But I guess we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. So people were wanting to have an open and free software, of course, for those not familiar, meaning that you have access to the source code and you can modify the software and redistribute it. That's the quick and dirty <laughs> definition of it. So people who, who wanted a graphical environment 
for their open source software. They began trying to come up with their own versions of it. And I guess some of the early ones out there, let's see, I don't know if TWM, how old that one is, but that that certainly well, it was an old one. It was one. quite uh, old, but TWM but I think, was a window manager, so it didn't really yeah. do much in terms of having a full system. Yeah, and I'm thinking though, and because after step might be the first sort of attempt to try to copy that. Would you say that? So there's a couple of things. One was the look and the behavior of your windows, and that mm-hmm. was handled in the X window system by window managers. So there was TWM, which was very old. There was FVWM, which was highly configurable and very popular for a while. Just a window manager too. Yep. And it led to the creation of FVWM 95, which was starting to get some attributes by cloning the Windows 95 UI, but it was lacking everything else from control centers to settings, to printer, to managing applications, to associating application types with software and so on. So it it, it was a progression of, on the one hand, people building window managers, which was a natural place to put this work. People having UI toolkits like Tickle for rapidly building applications or GTK or XD or Java had a thing called AWS and we had clones of that as well. So it was a very set of disparate attempts at doing these things. So yeah, there were different attempts to try to create various, as they call them, toolkits. And the one that kind of really started getting rolling was one called Qt, uh, Qt, which was put out by a commercial company called Troll Tech out of, what was it, Finland or Sweden? I always forget. Norway. Norway. Okay. See, yeah. The company was called Troll Tech. So I guess Troll had something to do with Norse mythology. And, uh, Presumably, yeah. And so Qt was a cross-platform toolkit also, which was interesting. Uh, there weren't a lot of those at that time period. Uh, so you could write software in it that would run on Windows and Mac and also on various Unix versions. And that was the promise of it. But there were a number of people who were concerned about the license of it, but many were not. And so they began working together on creating a suite of graphical applications, which they called the K desktop environment, which was a play on the common desktop environment. Did you ever use KDE in those early days? I know obviously you you didn't get into it eventually. I was a fan. In fact, like I said, the early Linux days were fascinating. There was a new thing happening every day and people sharing their code and ideas. And there was, we're talking about this before the interview, but there was this forum called Comp OS Linux Announce. And that was my drug. I would go there every day to check out what new capability had been unleashed on Linux, what new thing it could do, because it seemed every day brought in a new superpower. And it was a superpower because you have to remember that at the time, Linux was a multitasking and safe operating system compared to Windows, which had a better UI, but it was not really multitasking. And if one application crashed, it would crash the entire system. So you had to reboot your machine. On Linux, if something crashed, the system kept going. You just restarted again. So Linux in this particular era was magical. It was ugly, but magical. And every day got better. So when they announced KDE, I was in awe. I love KDE. 
Yeah, and this was 1996, just for everybody keeping. But I had been working on, I had been working with the Red Hat folks on a collaboration on bringing Linux to Spark computers, Sun computers, because I thought the future of Linux was high-end computers, <laughs> not consumer computers. So I had been working with them and I had a good relationship with them. I remember sending an email to Eric Trone, who was at Red Hat, and I said, Eric, we got to get this thing on Red Hat. We got to put this UI. This is amazing. This is our ticket. And I also sent an email to Richard Stallman and I said, Richard, we got to get, we got to get this thing. And both of them, I don't remember the separation between these emails, but both of them replied and said, the challenge is that Red Hat said we can't distribute it because the QT license prohibits us from doing that. And Richard's replied something along those lines which was a shame because we had built something from the ground up, right? We had spent all these years, Richard coming from one end, building the tools and eventually Linux bringing the other part of the half. So we had struggled, the community had struggled to get a full system that was free. And all of a sudden, a missing piece, the UI, which at this point, the video cards were good enough. The speed of the systems was good enough that it was a reality. All of a sudden, we were willing to give up on those principles of having everything be free for the sake of using this toolkit, Qt uh, from Trolltech. So that was a sad moment. And I decided to go and build an alternative. I said, we can use that, we can build an alternative and we can use some pieces that have been, some pieces of free software that have been created. Let's use those pieces and let's build the desktop from the ground up. So that was the launch of GNOME. And it had an acronym. What was the acronym? It's a layered set of acronyms. It actually stood for, uh, we repurposed that acronym from another project, but it was the GNU Network Object Model Environment. And the reality is that before we did the desktop, we wanted to build a reusable component system, which is where the GNOME name come from. So we had the name and we had started to think about writing reusable software inspired by what Microsoft was doing with Calm, but we didn't really get a chance to build it when this sort of high level emergency, hey, the future of the desktop, we risk giving it up because it's going to be proprietary. So we just repurposed the name of the project. So we didn't have to think too much about this. And that's where we, where we, we went off to the races. I think mm -hmm. that to this day, the logo of Gnome is a foot and the story of that is interesting. There was this artist in the community called Thomas Guzman, and, and Thomas had done a lot of drawings with the with a paint program, one of these free paint programs on Linux called the GIMP. And he had made a lot of little things that look cute. And when we were building the desktop, you know, I said, hey, do you mind if I use this icon for the mail app or the settings app or the clock or this or that? So we were building applications and we needed icons and we just asked Thomas, can we use your artwork? So we used a lot of his artwork and he started to do some artwork for us. And every day there will be something and hey, do you have a use for this or not? And we would use it or not. And just before we did the first launch of GNOME, there was one icon that we had found absolutely no use for. It was a foot. And we decided to take that foot and put it on the equivalent of Windows start menu. And we just put it there because that was the only icon that we had no use assigned yet. So we put that icon there and that became the GNOME logo. <laughs> and we've restyled it over the years, but we ended up with that because that was the, the sole surviving artwork asset that we didn't know what to do with. 
I, I wonder how many people know that <laughs> that story. Uh, about a dozen people know the story. Yeah, so that was 1999, roughly, when you guys went public with that. Was it? Yeah, at least it, that's what Wikipedia thinks. Okay. Uh, yeah, so at that point, having all of these graphical software environments in Linux actually set... And you had the internet gold rush at the same time with a lot mm-hmm. of these startup companies. Yes. And then Linux yes. was really starting to emerge as, as a full, complete set of software. It set off its own little gold rush in a sense. And so you had companies like Corel go into it. And Corel was, at the time, was this big desktop application vendor that was making Corel Draw and Photo Paint and WordPerfect. So... They were big. They were a big deal in the mm-hmm. application yes. world at that time, and and they decided that they were going to get into Linux themselves, and so they launched their own Linux desktop to try to compete with with Windows and Macintosh, and it didn't quite end in the success that they wanted it to be. But I, I want to say they were the first big investment in Linux at that time period in such a big way. Yeah, um, yeah, that, yes. And so it set a pattern. I, I think it put Linux on the map in terms of the corporate technology world that, hey, this is something to look at. Because at least in, on the server side, a lot of mm-hmm. websites at that time were being served in proprietary Unix or on FreeBSD, who dominated that space. So Linux began gaining some attention here, but hadn't really taken off to the degree that it ended up later getting attention. And then you guys kept refining GNOME over various releases. And so did KDE. And KDE actually had created a a web browser that was also a file manager called Conqueror. And Conqueror Mm -hmm. was later adopted by Apple to become their Safari browser, the original basis for that, which Google then turned into Chrome. Yes, You were obviously, I'm sure, very excited about all this stuff happening. You guys still hadn't hit the full big time like you had wanted, right? You wanted to keep expanding GNOME into other areas, which is how you got started into Mono. You want to talk about that and what that was supposed to be? Like I said, I think that there was a lot of excitement. In 1999, I I don't remember when Red Hat went public. I'm sure we can look this up. But I believe that VA Linux was the second company to go public Mm -hmm. in 1999. And like you said, there was a gold rush of companies around the internet at the time going public and making millions of dollars. And that's the year that I joined forces with this guy, Matt Friedman. We wanted to build our own company. We wanted to build our own company around GNOME. So we said, hey, we've built GNOME. Let's go and uh, build a company around that. So we launched our company in 1999. That's how I ended up in the United States. And in fact, in Boston, because he was graduating from MIT and we did launch our company. And once you're a company, and you have some venture capital, you have a lot of additional pieces to play with. We could fill in a lot of the gaps, a lot of the things that were not being done to GNOME. We fixed a bunch of bugs and usability problems. We could hire full-time artists. So rather than pick the foot <laughs> that nobody had taken, the only icon that was spare, we could actually have designers go and build us icons that we needed. So we did that, that company we did from 1999 until we sold it to Novell in 2003. But at the same time, like I said, around 2002 or so, I was worried that Genome was not growing fast enough. And that while we certainly had some applications being built, it was painful to do them. We're using a low-level language. It was difficult to build. 
it was error prone. We actually had the Z company that we started called the Zemian. We were trying to clone Outlook, Microsoft Outlook. So bring calendaring, email and contacts and synchronization to Linux. And in order to get big companies to be interested in Linux. Yes. And we wanted to and enable, you know. yeah. And, and the web is in its infancy. And uh, so things like Gmail are far away in the distance. So. It was so painful to build this thing. It was incredibly painful. We're spending all of our VC money debugging low-level code and barely making any progress. It was slow. It was a bear. But computers at the time were very slow, so you couldn't really afford to use... Today, you could use JavaScript or Python or whatever, a high-level language, and get away with it. In 1999, these were really bad choices, so we were developing with a low-level language. So by 2002, it was clear that we needed a better way of building this software or 2001, 2001. Um, and there was nothing really on the menu that we could use. And this is when Microsoft released Microsoft.net. And we said, this is exactly what we need is it's a compiled language, but it's also high level enough that we can use it to move faster. It might be a little bit more computationally expensive, but it's within the realm of computers in 2001. And we couldn't use Java for the same reason that we couldn't use Crawltech at the time, which is the license was not open source. So we said we can't use Java and Java is a monster. And there's this new Microsoft thing called .NET. They're making all the specifications public. So let's go and clone that. So we re-implemented those specifications and that led to the Mono project. Initially, I just wanted to have a tool for us to build better software and uh, as you keep building it, you find new interesting challenges and opportunities and users and things that you could do with it. So I started on .NET and, and I kept going. This day, I still contribute to .NET. So it's been almost 20 years of that. Yeah, it looks like it was 2004 was the initial release. That was 1.0. The Mono yeah. announcement was at a Riley conference. 2004 was the official release, but we announced it years before that. Oh, okay. Okay, here it is, December of 2000. Yeah, and I announced it officially in July 19, 2001. So we had the basics of the compiler, I believe, of the C-sharp compiler. We were not self-hosting. I think we weren't self-hosting by the end of the summer. So it was a very aggressive timeline, but I remember working during my vacation in Mexico. I went vacationing to Mexico in, in 2000. Uh, and I was working on that. A lot of people didn't like what you guys were doing, right? They were right because it was offended it was, at that. Yes, uh, some people were offended that it was a clone of a Microsoft technology. And Microsoft in 2000 was uh, deeply distrusted for many reasons. Microsoft had taken a very antagonistic position towards Linux. And my view was, that's a good technology. We should use the technology. And uh, some people felt that we shouldn't encourage the use of a technology designed by Microsoft. And then over time, things got a little bit worse. In 2006, my employer at the time, Novell, signed a patent license agreement with Microsoft. I don't remember the details, but the high level is we want to sue you over Linux. We want to sue you over your Windows. And that was seen as... Maybe there is a submarine patent in Mono that will destroy Linux. So the same mistrust, right? That I yeah. same distrust that I well, had towards this thing. So the, the same distrust that I, hey, hey, we can't build a future on Proltech or Java. Now some people are saying we can't build our future on Mono either, which I thought was a little bit extreme, but I can understand why some people had that feeling. And that distrust actually went on for years. Like I said, we started in 2000. 
I think it was okay until that agreement in around 2006. And it remained really on shaky grounds ever since. And I would say that it only really turned a corner when Microsoft themselves said, we are open sourcing our version of .NET from the ground up. We are okay to use it for whatever purposes you deem in 2015 or 2016. Mm -hmm. So there were 15 years of internet flame wars over <laughs> patent and copyright minutiae. Getting back. <laughs> yeah. Well, and Richard Stallman was one of those critics, was he not? Well, so Richard was one of the original people endorsing the Mono project. He had concerns though. He had concerns over the technical decision that compilers are separated, the front ends are separated from the back end, because he used the strategy effectively to force some proprietary languages to be open sourced. So he had success with that approach. So he didn't like the fact that there was an intermediate representation that would allow proprietary compilers from existence. So he wanted to stamp those out, but eventually, eventually he accepted it and it got more complicated in my company, right? My company that did open source software, eventually we realized that if you make pure open source software, nobody's going to give you money. So we started to sell proprietary software and that annoyed Richard Stallman tremendously. So this was and what was the software you were selling? We were selling an extension to our evolution software suite. It was an extension that allowed it to talk to exchange servers, to Microsoft exchange. So we said, Hey, listen, the software is free, but if you're going to connect a proprietary server, we'll sell your proprietary extension. And that was my fallout with Richard Stallman. And it, that was, I want to say 2001 or 2002, perhaps I can't remember, but we were no longer on speaking terms after that. And, and he saw Mono from the eyes of one day it might be proprietary. So he did start a competing project to Mono called .gnu. So there was more than one .NET implementation. It was Mono, which was ours. And then there was .gnu that was from other folks on the internet. In the meantime, you had the emergence of smartphones. They had existed for a long time, primarily initially as a descendant of Windows CE from Microsoft that had all the earliest mindshare grew out of PDAs. And then you had the other one that was the descendant of the Cyan computers, which was Epic, which later turned into Symbian. And then you had the Palm Pilots gradually acquired some cellular functionality. But all of these programs ultimately were very fractured and they had some severe limitations, whether it was in terms of memory or the processors were a huge limitation, obviously. Right. And then you had BlackBerry come along. So the market was in a lot of ways, it was very similar to the way Unix was before Linux. And so you had these four big vendors that nothing they did was compatible with each other. And that was by design. And many of them were hardware vendors as well. And so uh, smartphones, they were kind of a geek accessory. If you were involved in the technology industry or you were a journalist or a professor or a computer science person, you had them or like a traveling businessman or something like that. Mm -hmm. that those are the people who had them. And, and then Apple came out with the iPhone and that just drastically changed the phone market forever. And... Around that time when the iPhone, and 
the iPhone came out in 2007. And so, but while it was under wraps, Google was also working on a phone as well. And they were, they had designed Android to be a clone of BlackBerry at mm-hmm. the time, yeah. initially in the private betas. And then when Apple came out with the iPhone in 2007, they threw everything in the trash for Android, as they were calling it, and then redesigned it. But um, the interesting thing about what Google was doing was that they were using Linux as the core for it, as the kernel. And then they eventually rejiggered it to be very similar to the iPhone. And then you had Palm, which also threw its Palm OS in the trash can and Mm -hmm. started off with Linux as well, with their, in my opinion, very underappreciated web OS. Yeah. I was a fan. I was a fan. Pre, yeah. The, they, pre, they were... I have a pre somewhere in the office. So. <laughs> yeah. And so that just revolutionized everything. But Google did not use one of the pre-existing Linux toolkits. Instead, they decided to use a modified version of Java as their foundation. Now, how did you guys feel about all that in the Mono community when you got word that they were doing that? Do you feel like you could have been a contender? And it was taken away from you, or what did you guys think about all that? I, I wish I could remember how we felt. I was a fan of Android because it was Linux based. It was certainly a shame that it was based on Java. And like you said, they were inspired by Blackberry, and the design of Android was inspired by the limitations of Blackberry. So it was really intended to be running on super low power devices. And, and this is the sin that Android carries to this day. This is what makes Android so difficult to program nowadays because you're still programming the way that you would program a system with very little memory. So these mistakes that were made in 2000, whatever, 2007 or so, we're still paying for those today. I don't remember how we felt at the time, but I remember that we, that we, we tried to push Mono. We said, this is maybe better for you. I remember that when the lawsuit between Oracle and Google came out, that some documents, some internal emails came out advocating to use .NET or C Sharp and Google outright saying, oh, this is a bad idea because of some reason. And I remember getting very angry at the reason because it was a lie. So somebody either did not understand well enough or pretended to understand things well enough. And they make that judgment call. That was the wrong judgment call because very clearly they were in a more precarious situation with Java, the way that I saw it. And they ended up in that lawsuit. But I don't remember exactly how I felt at that particular time about their use of Java. But I did like that it was Linux-based. That was exciting. I followed the development. Some of my friends went to work on Android. It was like an exciting time. It was a very exciting world. But then Apple released the iPhone and it was not designed to be a Blackberry replacement. It was designed to be a full Unix system with very good taste and very good UI, much better than what we had built over the years on Linux. We struggled so much with so many of these things, and it was incredible to watch Apple execute so well from the get go on Uh this thing. So, yeah, so I fell in love with the iPhone very quickly. I guess it might have been Google decided not to even bother with X11 as well. And and I think that probably was a big factor in their ability. Absolutely. Yeah. For not using C-sharp, that was a separate discussion. But yeah, they didn't choose any of my stuff. 
<laughs> yeah. Okay. So Xamarin was under the Novell umbrella for a, a few years up until that point. And then Novell got acquired yep. by another company called Attachmate, which was more in the corporate consulting management type services. And then that brought a change for you guys as well. Let's talk about that. And when was that? Yeah, they acquired the company, Attachmate purchased Novell, and then they laid off, I think about a thousand people uh, right off the bat. My team and the product where we're bringing .NET to iPhones and Androids was laid off. And we very quickly, so it was a blessing, right? Uh, it was very stressful, but it was a blessing. As mm -hmm. soon as they laid off the team, in fact, they called me to the office. Hey, we want to talk to you. It's like, oh, excellent. Perfect. What are we going to talk about? It's like, hey, we need you to lay off your team. And uh, once you're done, you're laid off too. So, And this was 2011. 2011, yes. Yeah. So I had to lay off my team, the American team. The European team was more difficult because of European regulations. So they stayed at Novell employed for a few months as they sorted out what to do. But the American team was laid off immediately. And I said, hey, folks, let's start something. So I rehired them. Uh, and again, I called my friend that I had founded the first company. He was on a one-year break. He decided he was going to travel the world for a year. And he was in some island in the Caribbean. I said, hey, we just got laid off and I'm starting this company. I could use your coaching. So he was coaching me on a few things about how to incorporate, which lawyers to use, that sort of thing. And one day he says, hey, do you mind if I join the company? Oh, that would be amazing. So he cut his vacation short. <laughs> I think he was in month six out of a year and flew back to Boston. He said, well, my wife says, you know, we wait until Thursday because we just got here. So they flew on Thursday and we incorporated the company. He put in some money, I put in some money. We rehired the team. We rehired the team and we set out to build a company. We were so lucky. It was a great product for the right moment, for the right platform, which was bringing .NET developers to iPhone and Android. And so we launched a company in 2011. And we sold the company to Microsoft in 2016. And that's how I ended up at Microsoft. After spending, what, 15 years trying to unseat them, competing at every turn, desktops, mm -hmm. kernels, office suites, runtime, compilers, and so on. Yeah. Now, how did that come about? Did you guys approach them or did they approach you? We had a long going partnership because we were using uh, .NET. So we gave them feedback on what we wanted from .NET. We had joint customers, people that were using their technology, our technology. So we had a bunch of different go-to-market plans and sales events together. So we had a very close relationship with them for almost, I would say maybe three years, two to three years. So eventually they reached out to us and I started talking about an acquisition in remember 2015 uh, mm -hmm. 2015 there was a previous attempt a year before but that didn't go very far okay were they partially motivated also though by trying to promote their own windows phone operating system during that time is that, that related to that some of it but i think that windows phone was already sunset when the acquisition took place. But certainly the idea was to have a single language they had on, on servers and Windows desktops, and we gave them .NET on Macs, on Android, on iOS, and other rare platforms like S390 and other things like that, which to us was a little bit of a setback because 
a big part of our promise is you can, the same code that you've used on Android and iOS, you can use on Windows Phone. So, so when they sunset Windows Phone, it also took away some of the value that we gave. So it made our product, it was still valuable, just we lost a chunk of the value. Mm-hmm. Yeah, although it did enable them to have an ability to have developers within the other two yes. dominant operating yes. systems that had emerged. So at this point now, though, here in 2021, Android is overwhelmingly the dominant operating system in phones, and, and Linux is the server operating system. So where do you see things? I, I guess that's a big question here, and you don't have a lot of time. It's interesting, right? Linux is... When I started to help Linux, I wanted to see Linux as my desktop computer. I wanted to use it for everything that I did. It was something that really appealed to my younger self. And sadly, Linux on the desktop still hasn't quite unfolded the way that I wanted. I think the closest that you can get today is a Chromebook, which is an OS from the ground up running Linux, although half the services, it's really connected to my service. And Android is a little bit that way. So Linux didn't quite manifest that way. That's how I ended up with all these Macs. But I have a thermostat around here. It's a Linux machine, right? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) The shower control is a Linux machine. I was looking at my network uh, activity. And and a bunch of these things are Linux boxes, right? So Linux is now everywhere. It succeeded in ways I would have never imagined. And uh, sadly, did not quite make it on the one place where I spend my whole day in and out. And maybe I could continue using it, but I think that I'm speaking as a general market. I, I really wish that Linux had taken over by storm the, the, the consumer market, and that didn't quite happen. Sometimes we can succeed in ways that we didn't plan. And ultimately, as a, m- a number of people using it, it's much greater than if it had taken over the desktop, you could yeah, argue. And there's some good marketers that caution against that. Don't do a frontal assault on the incumbent. You're much better off offering products in different segments. So I wish that I had known 20 years ago. This is now well-studied phenomena that uh, yeah. a frontal assault is very expensive, very difficult, and you're always going to be chasing every single nook and cranny. So anyways, so now I know. So my next effort, I'm not going to do a frontal assault. I'll, I'll find new markets. All right. I appreciate your time today. We could probably talk for hours and hours more or so, but you're a busy guy, so I appreciate Thank you very uh, much being here. here. All right. Thank you. Great Thank conversation. So All right. Bye. It was a great conversation today with Miguel de Casa. And as I said, it's a little bit different than our typical political and historical fair here at Theory of Change, but technology is a very important part of our world and in many ways plays a role in our lives that we don't often even understand or are aware of. So let's definitely keep an eye on all of that. Thanks for listening today. Theory of Change is made possible thanks to people like you. If you liked what you heard today, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and leave a nice review. That actually is really helpful. And if you really want to support the show, please click on one of the donate links that are in the show notes. High quality content doesn't create itself. So you can really do something great from my standpoint by showing financial support. Theory of Change is part of the Flux Media Network. We're a new media organization providing in-depth podcasts and articles about politics, religion, media, and technology. 
The website address is flux.community. And if you'd like to visit the Theory of Change section, just go to theoryofchange.show and you'll go right to the episode archives. I'm Matthew Sheffield. Let's do this again.